Hey team, you're about to experience my interview with Susie Young. Susie is the e-commerce and digital lead for Metagenics. Metagenics is a natural health products and supplements manufacturer, and they supply the trade, meaning the practitioner industry, they supply the retail industry, and they have multiple retail brands sitting under the Metagenics umbrella. We talk all about B2B commerce as well as D2C commerce and how Metagenics is going to market through multiple digital channels and e-commerce websites all underneath their umbrella of brands. I also want to apologize in advance for a little bit of an echo that came through on my microphone for some reason in this recording. Hopefully it's not too distracting for you and Susie definitely puts out some information here that I think is going to be absolute gold for B2B brands out there in the market. Enjoy. Welcome to B2B Commerce Corner. Commerce Corner is a sub-series of the e-commerce edge podcast discussing all things B2B commerce through the lens of agencies, consultants, merchants, and more. Enjoy. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another cracking episode of the pod. I've got a banger of an episode lined up for you today. I've got Susie Young from Metagenics with me today. Welcome, Susie. Thanks for having me. It's awesome to have you along for the ride today. You are in the beautiful, sunshiny city of Brisbane. Yes, I am. And the sun is shining and it's middle of winter and going to hit about 23 degrees today. God, I don't know how you cope. Good times. <laughs> it's tough. <laughs> I don't know how you handle it. But yeah, my, I, as I said off air, I've got my sister, my brother-in-law, my two nephews, my mom all live in Brisbane. They all love it. I've been there quite a few times myself visiting family and friends and for business. And uh, Brisbane is a pretty special part of the world. Yeah, it is very beautiful and it's really come a long way in the last few years too. It's quite a happening city these days. We're really catching up to Sydney and Melbourne. Yeah, for a long, for a long time, I think Brisbane felt like Brisbaneite. Do you call yourself Brisbaneites? Brisbanders? Brisbaneites? I think it's Brisbaneites. Is that what you call yourself? Yeah, Brisbaneites and we call it Bris Vegas. Oh, yes. yes. Of course. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah. We use Vegas a lot in New Zealand as well for naming different places. But I feel like Brisbaneites always felt maybe if we go back 10, 15 years ago that they were in the shadow of Sydney or Melbourne or whatever, or the bigger, flashier cities. But I feel like Brisbane's really come into its own over the last decade. And definitely if we take all the work that they've done on the wharf to make it super attractive and put all the restaurants and I just feel like Brisbane has matured super fast in the last 100%. 10 years. Yeah, 100%. Like I was living in Melbourne about, that would have been about 10 years ago. And when I moved back, I must admit I had a bit of, a tiny bit of regret. Just where is everything? Why aren't there more restaurants and places to go on the weekend? But in the last five years, it's just come along so quickly. And now you can really get everything you need. Plus you've got the amazing weather and it's a bit easier to get around as well. Less traffic, less hassle. That's it's, it. Yeah, year round, year round, good weather, especially versus someplace like Melbourne. But and I guess this is a very nice segue into what you're doing now, which is focusing on health and nutrition over at Metagenics Digital yes. Marketing and Ecom Lead over at Metagenics, which is a you've got quite a few brands. I'll let you tell your story, but yeah. uh, it's a Halo brand. It's a manufacturer of natural health and nutrition and supplementation products under a, a number of sub brands underneath the mm -hmm. Metagenics. Parent. But before we jump straight into Metagenics, why don't you tell us how you came to be where you are? Because look, you've been doing this for a really long time. 
from a digital marketing e-com perspective, plus you're on the advisory board for conferences, the B2B e-commerce association, you're a merchant advisor, you're on the advisory board for iMedia. You've been, not only have you been doing this for a long time, but you're also heavily involved in giving back to the digital and e-commerce space and sending the ladder back down again as well. Yeah, I actually started my career in sales straight out of uni and in B2B. And at the time was working for a company called Insignia, who were in label manufacturing and traceability equipment, barcoding and lots of capital equipment and started in sales, but had a marketing degree. And the first 10 years of my career progressed through that very traditional sales and marketing B2B space. And was really lucky to join a fab company with a great culture and was just keen to get stuck in. I didn't really know what I wanted to do, and but found a great company, had great opportunities, climbed the ladder, and that was all excellent. And then I think I, one, one of the pivotal parts in my career was actually when I had children. And I remember before I had children stressing about what's going to happen to my career? How am I going to bounce back from this? And actually what happened after I had kids was I had the opportunity to jump into a few project roles. And those project roles, one of them was around CRM. It was the first time I'd gotten involved in a CRM platform and I got to lead that project. That was the Microsoft Dynamics 365 platform. And I loved it, found a passion that kind of I didn't know existed and threw myself into it. And my background in sales and marketing really helped with that because I really understood what we're trying to do for those teams. Another project that I led was actually around like a continuous improvement value stream mapping exercise across a business because again, B2B and manufacturing. And so really getting exposure to things like using those CI tools project managing for the first time, stakeholder engagement and all those kinds of things. And though those couple of projects were really pivotal for me and it led me down the path, which was more digital and really understanding that I liked technology and I liked data and that coupled with my sales background and kind of commercial background just felt like a really natural place for me to be. I was really lucky to get the role at Signet, which I was at for the last four and a half years. And so Signet is one of Australia's largest packaging companies. And there I was the head of digital and direct marketing. And one of the first things I walked into there was a platform migration project of a legacy e-commerce site. And that was the first time I had led an e-commerce replatform, but I'd been involved in CRM and I'd done marketing automation and I'd been involved in ERP. And so it was scary and knew that it was that kind of tech. I'd been around e-commerce and I'd been around digital marketing, but it was new. But what I found was like all these skills that I had through my career really helped me be able to drive that forward. And that was a fantastic project. We went from a legacy, fairly custom platform onto Adobe Commerce, and we also upgraded the full tech stack next to that. And that became a really amazing project that led to a lot of connections and networking and industry involvement. And that's how I ended up being involved with events and things like that. Because for example, Adobe asked me to speak at one of the iMedia events and then I met the organizers and I've always been a networker because my background is sales. I love people and I love connecting, et cetera. And that was how it led to meeting Brett Sinclair at the B2B org and getting involved there. So it's been a bit of a snowball effect 
but I absolutely love it. I say to a lot of people and particularly a lot of youngsters that I work with, I feel like I worked out what I wanted to be when I grew up when I was about 38. <laughs> and I all, don't get me wrong, I always loved everything I was doing, but I wasn't, it wasn't that really deep passion. Whereas when I found kind of e-commerce and digital marketing, I was like, okay, this is actually everything I've been working towards in my career. This is why I love this space. This is my calling, so to speak. This is my calling. Yeah, yeah. This brings together all the skills, that this mishmash of skills that I was learning through my career, and now this all works. I love that because what I've found is that most of our peers, I don't want to date myself because I'm getting on in years now, but I'm nearly 50 now. I can't, it's, I can't believe that I let that out of my mouth. But most of the people that are my peers, our industry is great in the sense that you can literally come from almost any background. You might've sold real estate. You might've sold cars. You might've worked in customer service. You might've been a, uh, worked in retail. There are people that come, you might've worked in data science. You could come from yeah. almost any background and digital is pretty cool in that we will embrace anyone that's really hungry to learn, that wants to make a difference. Businesses are so hungry for digital skills and capabilities that Almost whatever your bent is, if you're a creative, then you can go into the design area. If you're a if you're a developer, then you can go into the dev space working for an agency, say for example. So I think there really is something for everyone in our industry. And if you like B2C, great. If you like B2C, great. If you like B2B, awesome. But you've got room for that too. And particularly from a B2B perspective, which I think is probably a nice segue into Metagenics, I think yeah. that particularly during COVID, it brought home for a lot of B pure B2B brands that don't have a retail or D2C component uh, of their business or channel that they realized, oh my God, uh, we won't always necessarily be able to have field sales reps go and call on our customers and have these conversations. So we have got to figure this out. We got to figure this whole digital e-commerce thing out. And yeah. Versus the D2C, B2C space where there's still a shortage of resources, but not nearly as bad as the B2B e-commerce space where there is just not a lot of people out there that specialize in B2B e-commerce, is there? No, that 100%. And I think maybe I'll ex just tell you a bit about Metagenics. So Perfect. we, yeah, so we, this company was founded in 1985 and by some Brisbane founders. So manufacturing is here in Brisbane, which is really cool. And over time, it, originally it was called Health World and there were a few acquisitions. So it's owned today by Metagenics, which is a North American head office and a global business. We have presence also in Asia and across Europe. And we are specialized in natural medicines and in that VMS category. In Australia, we really have two, two sides of our business. One is the traditional B2B business where we sell to practitioners the natural medicines, and they prescribe that to their patients. And I think Metagenics were actually quite innovative in this space from a B2B perspective in e-commerce because they offer that online. And so a practitioner can log in and prescribe online to a patient. That patient then can come and have a login and just buy that product. So that's a really interesting, I guess, a B2C type model. And, and then the other side of the business is retail. And so we have some retail brands, particularly for this space. And traditionally, those brands have been sold through pharmacy and now grocery. 
And people mm. will probably know us more for those brands. So Inner Health is the probiotics yep. brand and they were the pioneer of probiotics in Australia all those years ago. And then we also have a full VMS brand called Ethical Nutrients, which is really targeted at women and has a beautiful range of products in there. And then a couple of other smaller brands as well, one called Endura, which is in the sports nutrition segment and a couple of other bits and pieces. And so those ones have really traditionally been B2B as well through that retail channel, a lot of EDI happening there. But Chemist Warehouse just, and yeah, you know, correct. All, all yeah. the big retailers. I'm, I guess I'm super familiar with your products and your brands because I worked in the natural health space for, for so all many right. years with Health, health Post as e-commerce yep. manager for Health Post, has a great relationship with the Metagenics team and, and all of your sub-brands. And then I also latterly had the opportunity to work with Mr. Vitamins on a very large e-commerce project with them. And of course, they oh, work with you guys and, yes, and they yes. are a practitioner. They can actually deliver your services because they've got that physical They've got that physical practitioner service alongside their online service. So I've been very yeah. lucky to be exposed to a lot of the Metagenics brands oh, right. over the years, yeah. both as a user, but also from an e-commerce perspective. Yeah, they are beautiful products. And I will say, I've only been with this business for five months, but they're, they take the product leadership strategic approach and they are passionate and focused on having the highest efficacy and quality in their product manufacturing. and. There's, it's beautiful the testimonials and the stories come through about how we're helping patients with issues they've had for many years across lots of different categories. So it's a lo lovely company to work for. We have only just recently launched a D2C channel as well. And that's part of my role is coming into this business and helping to grow that as well. But interestingly, this business hasn't had a local regional digital team for a few years. So they've been using their global team and outsourcing. And But they, with their strategic plans, digital is a huge priority globally. And so part of this opportunity for me was being that first one on and building a team and building a function and helping jump into this digital transformation. And I thought, oh, that's an amazing opportunity for me because... I've been through that before in a B2B context, and I know what the before and after of digital transformation can really look like for an organization like this. But I also get to get my hands dirty in D2C and figuring out what role that plays as well. And yeah, so there's, there's plenty to do at this organization, that's for sure. Wow. I've got like a hundred questions that just leapt into my mind as you were describing <laughs> what you're involved in, because... Not only are you involved in a business that is a manufacturer, wholesaler, and distributor of natural health products, you've got several different ranges, some practitioner only, some sold through retail channels, some you can sell direct as you are going to with D2C, but you are also operating in a heavily regulated industry in a, and you're mm -hmm. operating under the TGA in the United Correct. States, you'll be operating under the FDA. And there's, so there's different rules in different parts of the world that you export to. And even when you start to sell D2C, you'll have to abide by the rules that you've set for the people that sell your products, your own self. And you'll have to, if you, for example, want to sell those practitioner-only products, then you'll have to be like, almost like a Mr. Vitamins and offer those consultative services, even if they're remote consultations. So I guess what I'm saying is, given the channel mix that you've got going on, combined with practitioner products mixed with retail products, how, I guess, first of all, how do you prioritize where you focus your time? Because you're one person 
one mm. e-commerce manager and presumably you own, you're responsible for all those digital sales channels in all the markets and all the brands. So that's a lot, yes. to, that's a lot to own. And obviously from an e-commerce perspective, what a practitioner needs in terms of information from you and when they buy B2B is slightly different to what a retailer needs in terms of product data from you guys so that they can then, yeah. for example, at point of sale and in their marketing, they can make sure they're doing everything right and marketing and positioning the product correctly and not saying something that they can't say. There's just, there's a lot going on here. And maybe we start with, you You didn't always do D2C. That's a new, that's a new thing for you guys, but you've always been B2B. So have they always, or how long have they offered B2B e-commerce to their customers other than EDI or Punch-Out? They've been offering it for about eight years. Okay, so that's Seven a B2B world. That's a long time because there's a lot of there's a tremendous number of B2B brands that don't sell B2B e-commerce at all and they only do EDI or they don't do anything automated. It's all manual. Yeah, correct. So yeah, they're, they're quite mature in that sense. And because I haven't been with the business for long, I'm not sure how that plays in the market. I'm not sure if they were the pioneers or if others. I know that it's fairly typical, this B2C model in our market now. But I would say they've definitely focused on having technical and IT expertise within the business. So we're really lucky to have a fantastic global team to rely on. So lots of internal capability that's been built around like e-commerce product management, integrations, engineering, architecture, infrastructure, all that kind of stuff. And then I guess working with the other markets too. I, even though I've only been there for five months, I've been able to build a small team already. So I've managed to find some expertise around e-commerce, digital marketing and digital content as a initial, the initial pillars. And I guess what I've been busy doing is trying to plan and roadmap and assess everything and work out like what is the roadmap for the next 12 to 18 months and the prior, trying to work out what the priority is quite difficult because there's a lot going on. Like we have 12 websites on five different platforms at the moment. And so there's a big focus on consolidation and there's some really exciting platform projects going on in the business globally that we'll be able to jump onto in the next couple of years, which is really cool. But for me, it's been going back to basics and that's I've looked at some key pillars in my roadmap and with my team about what we're going to focus on. And at the start, I think nothing is too sexy and exciting, but it is just getting the basics right and making sure our data and our tracking and our reporting is very good. And we have digital BAU processes to make sure we have finger on the pulse of everything. First party data is a huge priority and something we're probably a little behind on and that we really need to focus on for the future. And have we got the right technology to do that? Do we have the right programs to engage subscribers and leverage all that data? And then content is a huge one. I think you, you mentioned before about we've got all these different customers. We've got the practitioner, we've got the customer, which is a retailer, we've also got the consumer as well. So it's all quite different. But what's really great about Metagenics is Metagenics has a real, they're very known for education. They've really invested in their education team. And we're actually rated number one through, we, we do research every year and we're rated number one by our suppliers in terms of 
um, sorry, our customers, our retail channel in terms of the education that we provide to that channel. So there's actually already a lot of amazing content in this business. And so a lot of what we'll be focusing on is how do you take that amazing content and then repurpose that for the different customer types. So yeah, there's definitely a lot to do, but, and it's an exciting opportunity because it is building this function and this team in the ANZ business. But I think just falling back on making sure we're just doing the planning and running the team and doing the sprints and regular meetings and and all those basics, I think that's what I'm focused on at the moment to just make sure that we're on the right track and we're doing the things that we need to do. And that's a very structured process. Wow. You definitely got your hands full. Now, if we take a step back for a second and we look at the tech stack that you're running now, you may not know all of it because you've been only been with the business for five months. So if you don't have the answers, I get it. But when we think of B2B businesses like yours that are heavily focused on the B2B side of the business, the beating heart of the business tends to be the ERP. And that's where the font of all knowledge in the business around customer data, around product data, et cetera. Then over and above that, sort of more mature B2B brands oftentimes will bring into the stack a PIM system, a product information management system for all the enriched data uh, that you need that e-commerce platforms aren't really built to deal with and neither are ERPs mm-hmm. really well designed to handle that. And so you then you can start thinking about, okay, what does enrichment workflows look like? What do stage gates look like for each channel so that we make sure that everything is in a state that we want it to be before it goes yeah. to market? across any channel, including marketplaces or any other channel other than owned websites. So maybe talk us through a little bit of the stack that you encountered when you got to the business. And you said that there's a lot of flux going on. There's a lot of consolidation going on. Share with us as much information as you're allowed to around what you're running, what the plans are with that stack and where you would ideally like to see the business get to over the next, say, two, three, five years. Yeah, some of the technology decisions in the business are global decisions. So we're following that roadmap that already exists. And then other decisions are more local decisions. I think if you look at the B2B side of our business, you are spot on. Like that kind of ERP, CRM is like the heart and that data warehouse is the heart of the data and the business. And we sit on Microsoft stack there. And, so like D365 you know, kind of. Correct, which is it's all kind of the best products in there and there's some really great foundations there. Our B2B website sits on Sitecore and there's not too much technology that sits around that. that a lot of that has been legacy and is quite customized. On the D2C side of the business, we've launched that on Shopify. So we have chosen a different stack because it's just a whole different it's a whole different business channel. Model. Yeah, a whole different business model. But the, I guess the great thing is that because we have that amazing expertise within our business around technology and integration, we have been able to integrate that off the get-go. So we're not faffing around with manual orders, which is... Mm-hmm really helpful because we can really then just focus on the front end. We can focus on the customer and focus on just growing that business, whatever that look like and whatever that the role it is that that plays in the channel mix. And then there's a lot of projects going on around the business. Like one of the big global projects we've got going on is around marketing automation and CDP, for example. Uh And one another one is around content 
and content management system. And like you said, like all the different gates that need to be there and what adds complexity to that for a business like ours is obviously the TGA and the health requirements and the privacy and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, there's some fairly- Compliance is brutal (laughs) in the space. Yeah. There's some fairly meaty projects going on around the business. I probably can't go into too much detail uh, about that. It's it's like any kind of regulated industry, whether it's the cannabis industry, whether whether it's selling alcohol online. Anybody who has worked in a regulated industry will understand what kind of complexity this entails and what kind of permissions are required, particularly in... Australia, where you're crossing straight state lines when you're shipping products and each state can have different rules. Sure, there's the overarching TGA, but each state will have different rules. And I know, like, for example, when I was at Health Post and we had to ship honey products, for example, Western Australia has completely different regulations around honey products yeah. than, than New South Wales, for example. And so yeah. even food-based products are really heavily regulated. And so being able to conform to all the local, regional, national regulations in every market in which you operate, it's a minefield. Yeah, 100%. And I understand Australia and New Zealand are the strictest countries of the world too. Yes. So that's an interesting one because we can perhaps manufacture and other regions can take our products, but not necessarily the reverse. The other way around. Yes. <laughs> but I think one of the things that I has been the most enjoyable for me walking into this business because there's a lot of change going on and and a big focus on digital and digital transformation. But it's just been the buy-in from the executive leadership, either regionally or globally. And I think that is often the hardest part. And when I talk to friends and, and colleagues in this industry, most people, particularly in B2B, are struggling with convincing the executive leaders that they need to do something and that they need to be on this path. And what I feel very fortunate about is that I've walked into this business being the first one in and having to build this team and just the trust and the commitment to this effort has been really amazing. So they really understand that this is the direction that they want to go They're open and eager to learn and consider maybe different ways of doing things. And that I feel very fortunate for because instead of spending so much time convincing people about what I want to do, instead I can focus that energy on actually executing what I know we need to do. So that's been a really, I expected, obviously through the interview process, I could see there was an eagerness for this, but I was expecting it to be a bit harder because I've been in organizations that have been excellent from this perspective, but I've also been in a business that didn't really understand it and understand what that struggle looks like and how hard it can be when you're I don't know, like a lot of people I talk to in this industry are in digital roles in B2B, but they're still reporting to a head of sales. And And so, what? How does this work? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's no one on the ELT who is digital or or IT. And so they're just battling with just even trying to get this conversation started. Yeah, and I've never really understood that, why businesses will bring someone in and almost set them up for failure to a degree because, oh, hey, look, we want to be seen to be doing something 
in the digital space, but we don't really want to do anything in the digital space. But let's bring somebody who's on, who's a subject matter expert that can maybe act as a bit of a liaison on our behalf with customers, whether that be B2B, D2C, whatever. Let's bring someone in that can at least keep us informed and up to date what's happening in the industry and all that sort of stuff. But the thing is that if you never take any action on what's being recommended and the guidance and the direction and the leadership they're trying to provide to the team, that leads to burnout and frustration pretty quickly. And so I think, yeah. I, I think there, and, and especially in the B2B space, because good quality B2B digital resources are so hard to come by, they're like unicorns. When you find one, you really have to enable them and empower them to make yeah. some pretty strong decisions. Otherwise, you're going to lose them. And would you, have you seen that too happening in the space? 100%. Yeah. I was just having a conversation with a colleague a couple of weeks ago about the exact same thing where she's just frustrated because she's been brought into a business to do a particular role and is just banging her head against the wall and feels burnt out by it and is thinking about what's next. So it's a really tricky one. I think my role in this organization or any that I'm going to be in around e-commerce, particularly if it's B2B, is as much about change management and being that change agent as it is about the e-commerce. So I know that. And I think also perhaps some of the people that are jumping into roles like this have a really good technical expertise, but maybe don't have the leadership or experience to know the other side and what it takes. And so that's where I feel really thankful that I came into this a little bit later in my career. In some ways, I wish I had found it earlier, but then I think, you know what, I got a really good long time to cut my teeth on leadership and change and project management and dealing with all different stakeholders and understanding different business functions. And that I know when I go into an organization, I guess I know what to do and I know who to talk to and all those other things besides the just the technical side of e-commerce. Yeah. So it's what a really... Say or, uh, sorry, you go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, no, it's just a really interesting one. I was actually listening to one of your other podcasts and I can't remember which one it was, Jason, but you were talking about how we're like in this industry, we're seeing a lot of people come up through the organization and take e-commerce roles in B2Bs. And I think that's a really great pathway because in in B2B e-commerce, particularly like I always say to people that I know in this industry, get to know your other channel leaders so well and get to know their functions because what you're doing is you're actually working with them and you're migrating customers and orders from those channels. So like I make it my business to get to know the call center and the customer service team and how many orders are they processing manually and if we converted those to the website, what, how many, how many hours do that, does that save for the business and how does that change the business model? And in terms of sales, there's always field sale or mostly field sales in B2B and what role does it play and how can I be really engaged with the sales team so they don't see that as a threat, but they see that as a benefit and as adding to the relationship, not taking away from it. So, Yeah. That's always where I start and always where I'm encouraging others that I know in this industry to start. So I think some of the people who've come through B2Bs and they might have been maybe a customer experience leader or a marketing leader, but been involved in that B2B environment, they've kind of got a good shot of being successful here if they're passionate about getting in and learning. 
And I think, you know, what I was going to say before is that really what you're referring to is what have classically been known as soft skills, but I actually think of them actually as hard skills. I think they yeah. are an absolute prerequisite for being able to facilitate change in organizations that are usually as complex as most B2B organizations are. The, their sales processes are so much more complex and their product uh, products and product information tend to be so much more complex. Their production models and their distribution models and the environments that they're working in internationally, it's just it, the, the complexity tends to be four, five, six times what it is in the standard D2C, B2C world. And I think if we don't have empathy, if we haven't built empathy in our time in the industry, when we arrive in these organizations, we can be perceived as a bit of a bull in a china closet. And so I think that what you're talking about is really exercising your empathy gene pretty intentionally throughout your career, building and exercising that empathy gene so that you do understand the perspective that these people are coming from. So for example, field sales reps, if they're, if 50% of their income, for example, is reliant on commissions, for example, or a significant part of their income is reliant on commissions and you, they've never seen a good B2B implementation before that doesn't take money out of their pocket but actually makes their lives better, then it's up to us to paint that picture for them so they actually want to be on the journey with us as opposed to us dragging them, kicking and screaming and beating them over the head. And so it sounds like what you're saying is that the people skills, sure, you can learn, almost anybody can learn the tech. Like almost anybody can learn that if they really want to learn it. But you have to really make the people skills a focus if you want to be good at that because it's not something you pick up overnight. 100%. It's the people skills and being the change agent and then understanding also, I think, as is important is that project management piece because it's there are long projects, there's lots of twists and turns. And I think if in, in some businesses, like we, we have a beautiful project management team and that's like such a luxury for me because I've come from businesses that haven't had that. So I've always had to play that role as well. Uh, <laughs> if you get to a place and they've got a PMO, you're lucky. I know. It's like such a luxury. But I think for a lot of B2B e-commerce leaders, like having project management skills are super important as well. Like having a lot of those businesses aren't using a framework or a methodology of any sort and then just can get lost in the project and the project goes on and on. And another, some of the other skills I learned, I feel lucky to have learned from being in B2B organizations is around the CI skills that I mentioned before, because mm. we all did that. Like I did that years ago, just going, oh yeah, like we're learning Shingo model and visual workplace and all that kind of stuff. And that stuff has just become so invaluable to me in my career because just how to run a team and have stand-up huddle boards and do mapping events and do root cause analysis and all those types of things, I think they're the like soft but hard skills. Hard skills, yeah. Yeah. There actually has to be a framework around these things in order for you to bring consistency to the way the organization handles these projects. Yeah, 100%. So yeah, there's a lot of, I guess, there's a lot of that stuff that's stationary, I think, that sits around e-commerce that I talk to a lot of people about because you'd be surprised in how many like large organizations, they don't have stuff like that. Like they don't use a project management framework. Or even a tool or a platform. They're not using 
They're not using a Jira. They're not using an Asana. They're not using That's any kind right. of Kanban. They're not using any kind of Kanban system. They don't understand what a sprint is. They're relying That's on right. nine times out of 10. What I see is they're relying on their partners to deliver the framework to them as part of their project. But the problem is that with large scale projects like what you're talking about, you tend to have two, three, four, sometimes five partners that That's are co-delivering right. pieces of work. You might have two or three agencies that are working across two to three different platforms. You might have an, a, a separate partner slash vendor that's working across your PIM or your CDP systems. You might have another partner that is working across your system integrations. You might have two or three other partners that are working on digital marketing alongside you. So they've all got their own project management systems. They've all got their own pro project management tooling. And if you are not the central hub of that, if you are not owning the program management, the overarching program management, because a lot of brands, they expect their development agency to be also yeah. their program manager because they're usually doing the lion's share of the work. But what I've seen is that can fall over because oftentimes organizations don't necessarily want to pay the digital agency the extra money to program manage everyone else as well. And so yeah. there can be a little bit of friction there if the expectation isn't set early. Okay. If we don't have the capability to do this, then we need to bring in someone that can or yeah. we need to upskill and be able to have build up some of this program management capability in-house so that instead of being led by the nose by all of our partners, we're actually doing the leading. We're guiding the program. We're making sure everything is on track. We're making sure dependencies are getting dealt with. We're making sure that blockers are getting unblocked. We're making sure and we're setting the schedule for the standups and the sprints. We're making sure everything is aligned. And I think that you make such a good point, which is that you got to walk before you run. And if a B2B organization has never done e-commerce before at all, they have to start with at least a basic, basic e-commerce understanding and capability in-house. And they might be outsourcing 90% of the rest. But but they need to have some kind of capability in-house. So maybe you can talk through your concept of walk before you run or crawl before you even walk. Yeah, I think in terms of like program management and project management, it can be really tricky because as you said, if you're running projects with multiple vendors, everyone's got their own system. But I would say a good example to talk through on this one would be that Signet project. We were using, you know, an agency for the development of the e-commerce platform. We were also on a personalization platform, a ratings and reviews platform, on-site search and marketing automation all at the same time. And I think the lesson there is to have some way of project management project managing that but it doesn't have to be overly complex either we did a lot of our tracking and project management internally in trello because mm. agencies were all using jiras and yes Rike and monday and like all these systems and we didn't want to duplicate that but we wanted a really simple way to create the kanbans to keep mm. track of everything that was going on so we did that through Trello boards, even having a Trello board for content migration and being able to have the whole team work on that and having a board for internal communication. So we planned out who we were going to talk to, when, what we would say, and all that kind of planning really pays off because then when you're in the project and you're in UAT and stuff's going wrong, which always happens... That's the stuff you forget to do, communicate, totally. update stakeholders. But if you've got these Kanbans and you're doing the weekly sprints and you go, okay, like I've got to do that this week, it's just 
so helpful. So it's it's just real. I think it's real basics, but I think they're just so important. The other boards we had were all around training for internal and external. That going through the change management process, we need to help people get used to this change. It's a whole new website. We've got customers here who have purchased. Signet was very mature as well from e-commerce. They'd been trading already for 12 years before we re-platformed. Wow. So they were quite ahead of their game. Time. And they had customers who we felt this website was pretty bad, but those customers, B2B customers are different in a lot of ways, right? Just come to the website, they log in, they go to a shopping list, they order the same stuff, they hit checkout. It's on account a lot of the time. So it's this, it's just a very systematic four steps that they take. And so when you're changing that, that's quite scary for a lot of customers. Yep. I would say like over-investing in time and planning the change management for your customers is just so important. Do you have SOPs? Do you have videos on the new tech? Have you give, ha, do you have a really strong comms plan beforehand? We selected our top 1,000 customers that were ordering on our website and we split that up around salespeople and internal support and we called them to tell them that this website was coming and if they needed any, this is how you would need to update your password and we're here for you. We piloted with the top customers early. I got on calls personally. So it was just like, I feel like we we overplanned, but that that led to a lot of success and mitigating a lot of the noise that can happen through making that change. And similarly, we had a really great plan for internal customers as well, because the day we go live with the new website, we know we have a call center and we know we have a sales team who are at the front line who are going to get all these calls. I can't log into my account. How the hell do I do this? So we we, we actually slowed down the launch of our project to spend a bit more time training our call center and we had them all log in and simulate a customer and spend a few hours in the site, check out as a guest, create a new account, update your password if you're an existing customer so that when launch day comes and those calls come in, they're familiar with the site. Mm-hmm. And, and all those types of things, again, we just plan, we plan that out in our project plan. We had that on Trello, Kanban boards we met regularly around visual workspaces and just chipped away and it's great to reflect on these things because I must admit at the time being in a project of that size and migrating significant revenue was pretty stressful and lots of late nights and it felt pretty horrendous at the time I will say but after you come out the other side and you can have a bit of time bit of bit of separation from the project and reflect I think, wow, like they were just what I think are like the basics to to business, to change yeah. to any project. But we did those well. And gee, I think that's the best thing we did in that project. I think that gave us that some really great success. Wow, such great tips. And I think what I would say alongside that is is when I've been part of large change processes, that adoption plan that you're talking about and having a plan around that, because I see a lot of businesses that they don't do any adoption planning whatsoever and they relaunch and or they launch for the very first time and they tell the salespeople, oh, go and talk to your customers and walk them through a couple of orders and it's your problem to deal with. And I think that that guarantees low adoption of something that you potentially have invested a massive amount of time and energy in. 
But I think secondarily, I think also when it comes to test planning and UAT, having your cross-functional teams also invested in writing their own test plans to make sure that the website does all the things that they assumed it would do for their team and their department. Uh, and it works the way that they expected it to work so that they can not only write the test plan and help you with UAT because it doesn't make any sense, for example, the e-com manager to be responsible for the whole of UAT. First of all, it'd take forever. Second of all, how would you know what's in their head if they haven't documented yeah. it? And so I've always worked with cross-functional teams. I've given them guidance on how to create a test plan, but I don't write the test plan for them. They write the test plan for their department, for their team, for their functions. And then they document that. And I've found something as simple as smart sheets is good enough to create a test yes. plan in. Pass, test, fail, pass, retest. And then you have to do that on staging. And then you have to do it on production. And then you have to run the same test again post-live once you're actually live to make sure that everything that worked pre-launch actually works post-live. And, and then having each team be responsible for that. So that instead of them pointing the finger at you and saying, this doesn't work the way we thought it was going to work, we should have figured that out in UAT after the agencies or whoever was working on this did the QA. And I think making sure that the team feels engaged with the project from day one, knowing and you setting the expectations. Yeah. This is your level of involvement that you're going to need to have beginning, middle and end of this project. This is how you're going to need to be involved. So we're going to have to be able to figure out a way to carve out some time out of BAU business as usual, out of your schedule, so that you guys can be engaged with this project throughout the project lifecycle. And these are some of the soft skills I think that you're referring to that if you don't do this, and you just spring it both on your team and your customers, the chances of project failure are so high that it doesn't bear thinking about. 100%. And you hear like project failure all the time. You hear all these awful stories and things, projects that were like half implemented and not finished. And yeah, I think it's this like almost obsessing over the details of everything relating to change management and training and implementation that end up leading to a successful migration or upgrade. And similarly, then one of the things that then we had to shift focus to at Signet after we migrated was, okay, so now we have this amazing tech stack, this great web, great website and great adoption, but how do we work out ways to have the teams own this moving forward and selling this to our customers to help us migrate more and more customers? So how do we get the sales team really bought in so they, at the sales process even, are talking about the website and almost signing up to the website becomes part of the onboarding process? of a new large customer. And similarly, if I'm in the call center and I'm taking live chats or phone calls and they're still trying to place an order through traditional channels, how can I Why? train those people <laughs> up? Yeah. And how do I empower them to say, oh, it's actually super easy. If you click this link, it's two steps and you're in your account and you're off. Or here, and so let me that, share screens with you and I'll walk you through it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. We had that functionality with our live chat platform at Signet mm -hmm. where we could share screen and we could show them how to log in. So there was a lot of effort and focus around that. We One of the programs we came up with for the enterprise customers were was we called it a website concierge. And that was a process that we hung on the end of around the onboarding of a new customer and just packaged that as a service. We'll... 
You get two hours of training for your team where we'll help you set up your account. We'll set up the shopping lists and all that kind of stuff. And that stuff, there's that, there's, I guess there's all different customer types in B2B. The very top end are probably doing EDI and punch out. So that's And they're never going to touch it anyway. The bottom end are self-serve and that's great. But in the middle, there's all these customers that are big and they can sometimes buy lots of SKUs and it is a little harder to get started. So we would have some customers that might buy 50 or 60 SKUs. And so just us holding their hand a bit and setting up shopping lists and getting the right logins and approvals or things like that set up and having them feel confident was worthwhile because that might reduce that one banner group might have reduced 800 orders coming into the call center this year Mm -hmm. and you start doing 10 of those 20 of those 30 of those then again you're helping your business be more efficient and streamlining stuff and yeah it's all they're all really important steps to take pre and the success factors right i think those be should become part of the kpis around what project success looks like is what is the adoption rate in the first 6 12 18 24 months and we should have targets in place. And even if we don't hit them, if you aim at nothing, you'll hit it every time. So I think those of us that are in leadership positions, it's up to us to set realistic targets that maybe, okay, here's our minimum baseline. Here's our average middle of the road. And here's our stretch targets. And here's what we're trying to achieve and why here's the incentives to help us achieve them. And I've seen B2B brands also go the extra mile and say, okay, we're going to add one little extra incentive to field sales so that all of the sales that come through the website from your named accounts, you're going to get an extra half a point or you're going to get an extra point in your commission or you're going to get an extra bonus or whatever. If certain targets are hit in terms of adoption, your portfolio of customers, we're going to incentivize that in some way so that you actually are going, if I'm going to do all this extra work to help these people on board into this platform, what's in it for me apart from less admin time? And so I yeah. think I think the best brands that handle these large scale migrations or implementations, they are thinking about the impacts internally and externally across multiple lenses. And what motivates a sales team to help customers on board into a platform is totally different to why a customer service team should want to help onboard customers into a platform. And so you have to incentivize them differently and you have to encourage them in different ways. And you have to be speaking to them using different language. You have to use their language. You can't use your language. You have to use their language. And so I think what you point out here is that we have similar concepts in B2C, D2C land. It's just that in B2B, there are so many more stakeholders in the process and in the journey. And because the sales process tends to be significantly more complex, products tend to be significantly more complex, and our relationships with our customers tend to be significantly more complex, then we've just ratcheted up the complexity of, a, of what would normally be a maybe minor project in D2C, B2C land. and B2B land, they become bigger than Ben-Hur pretty quickly. Yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> Listen, Susie, I have absolutely, an hour and a bit has flown by. I really appreciate you chatting with me today. You've been a wealth of knowledge. I've super enjoyed it. Your time in the trenches is very obvious. So I appreciate you sharing all your tips and tricks on how to have successful B2B projects in these large organizations. It's just awesome to chat with you. We're now at the time when I get to flip the script and I get to hand the microphone over to you and I get to let you ask me one question, any question you like, personal, professional, doesn't matter. Susie Young from Metagenics, what is your question for me today? Ooh, okay. So 
What would you say was the like most pivotal role earlier in your career that really has set you up for success now? Oh, I've just lost sound, Jason. Sorry there. Fantastic question. A question I've never been asked before. So awesome question. Absolutely love it. Definitely owning my own pure play e-commerce business. So I see a lot of people in our industry, whether it be consultants or agencies or vendors, whatever it might be, giving a whole lot of advice based on theory. But if you've never, ever been in the trenches, if you've never owned an online store, if you've never run an online store, if you've never had your income be dependent on your ability to implement, run, and market an online experience, then, you know, it's difficult to have empathy for what merchants are going through. It's difficult to have empathy for the types of functionality that your salespeople might be selling in a platform. And you say, oh yeah, it does that. Well, does it really? Does it do it in the way that the merchant really needs it to be done? And so it's easy to get a little bit deep in the theory of how to do things. But if you don't have any practical grounding at all, it makes it really difficult to understand the nuances of each business and how what you're proposing is going to impact that business positively and negatively. And so it, it becomes difficult to hold their hand through the journey. If you haven't walked a mile in their shoes before, how the hell do you know what that feels like? How do you know what that looks like? And sure, there are some amazing people in our industry who have never worked merchant side before or had their own business before. But the ones that I see that tend to have the best full spectrum understanding of what it takes to do what we do well, they have worked for merchants before. They have worked at the coalface of implementing these projects. They have seen the outcomes of these projects. They've had to drive ROI off the backside of these projects. They've had to justify the budget and the expenditure into these projects. They've had to they've had to live with the consequences of the decisions that they've made or the things that they've recommended. And they've had to fight through that and see these very difficult projects through to a successful conclusion and launch. And those are the people that have a few battle scars and a few battle wounds that in my experience, they're the ones that make the best people to lead these types of projects for brands because they just, they've put blood, sweat, and tears into this before and they know what it feels like. And they make the best advocates in the trough of despair because I use this term trough of despair, mid-project. Every project goes through it. Every single project goes through it. And everybody starts out really excited in the beginning and, oh, we're in discovery and we're documenting all the requirements. We're all excited about this new project. And kind of everybody's thinking about what it's going to be like once we're actually live. And then six months in, everybody's going, oh, my God, what have we done? And you've got to be the person that keeps the faith because you've seen what the results look like before. And you know that we will get through this. We will survive this. Yes, it's painful now, but you have to keep reinforcing and repainting the picture of the result over and over again so that everyone else stays on the bus and everyone else doesn't lose faith and hope. And Sometimes you might be the only one carrying that flag in the middle of a project, but for those of us that have seen these big, long, scary projects out to the end and seen the amazing results that they can end up with, it is our job to be the evangelist. It is our job to be the ambassador. It is our job to keep the faith. And so I think it's easier to do that if you've seen some of these projects through to a happy conclusion, then it's easier for you to keep the faith than if you have never done it before. It sometimes seems pretty scary when it's your first time. Yeah, 100%. And what were you selling with your business? 
memory cards for digital okay. cameras and cell phones. So this okay. was in the beginning of the days when memory cards, uh, a 32 megabyte, not gigabyte, megabyte memory card was $600. <laughs> Very good. So we were the Tough first times guy back then. Oh man, it was rough. <laughs> the world was rough when it came to memory products. And now they give them away free with phones and cameras and everything else yeah. as, as just a package deal. But back in the day, everything memory related was super expensive. And we were the first ones to actually direct import into New Zealand, all these products, warehouse them locally and ship them direct to the customer. And so it was a super exciting time. That was the internet and e-commerce was very young at that time. And man, the industry's come a long way since then. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's great. Listen, Susie, it's been fabulous talking to you. If people want to find out more about you and what you're doing, if they want to find out more about Metagenics, I'm sure that people will have some questions based on your uh, amazing experience in the industry. Is it best that people reach out to you on LinkedIn if they want to have a bit of a yarn about e-commerce or yeah. if they want to learn more about Metagenics, just go to the Metagenics website? Yeah, most definitely. Definitely, you can reach out to me on LinkedIn. And yeah, Metagenics has the metagenics.com.au website, but we also have innerhealth.com.au and ethicalnutrients.com.au. And there's some beautiful products on there too. So people should definitely contact me if we, they want the inside goss on the best products to buy because there's some amazing <laughs> ones. I tell you, Inner Health was one of our top, always one of our top selling brands when I was at Health Post. I think your little, yeah. your little characters, the little bubble the bugs, characters of the, the, blue probi bugs. the probiotics, the blue bugs. Yeah, they were a seriously good <laughs> marketing idea. I'm not sure who came up with that, but certainly anthropomorphizing bacteria was a smart idea. Yeah, they're not going anywhere. You'd be amazed <laughs> how many people are after these little blue bug soft toys that we give away sometimes <laughs> they're very purchase. popular uh, yeah that's it <laughs> next campaign Listen, thank you so much for your time i super appreciate it have loved our chat together and can't wait to get you on again soon and uh, see what's next for metagenics are you a b2b or d2c e-commerce merchant then head over to greenwoodconsulting.net to learn how we can help you scale your business